last week we are, well, we're in, we're in Advent season, like I said, which is waiting. It's all about waiting. In the ancient Israel, in the Old Testament, they were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, and we too are also waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so we're talking about waiting, what it's like to wait for the kingdom. We started last week by talking about the kingdom lost, about uh, about the fall and what happened in the Garden of Eden. There's, no, there's just no way to do that without a lot of sadness and heaviness. And we, I think we were all feeling it last week. It was a, it was a heavy and sad event. Uh, but the last word in that chapter wasn't a word of death. The last word in that chapter was a word of life that God promised that one of Adam and Eve's offspring would come and that he would undo everything that they had just done. And if you follow the story of the Old Testament, it keeps going. It's really the story of tracing that promise through these this family lines that the descendant that promised Adam is again reaffirmed to Abraham. Eons later, God pulls Abraham out of a pagan worshiping culture and says, and says that promise that I made is still alive. The promise that one of your offspring will come and save the world is still alive. Uh, and then you go down another, you know, a few hundred years, another thousand years really, and we get to David, where God again reaffirms that, prom- that promise again, that, that through that offspring, he will crush the head of the serpent, the offspring that, through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. Now a thousand years later, God is reaffirming the promise again to King David that in a fallen world, of bad kings, God is going to promise to send a good one. And that's what we're waiting for. And so would you please stand now out of respect for the reading of God's word uh, as we read Second Samuel 7, verses 8 through 17. This is God's inerrant word. Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make your name great like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever." In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, it is true. 
We live in a fallen world and it has conditioned us in ways that we don't even know. And we are tired, Lord. We are tired of the struggle against our own sin. We're tired of the looming threat of death and the separation, the unnatural separation it causes between us and people we love. We're tired of being constantly conditioned by the effects of sin in the world. And so we pray, Lord, that you would show us the great and unbreakable promise that we have from you in Jesus today as we read this, Lord, as we study this. We pray that you would show us the beauty of Jesus. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So what I just read is, the, is called the Davidic Covenant. It's a big deal in the Bible. There's many covenants in the Bible. They all work together. And this one uh, is, is probably, a lot of theologians say that this is like a summit passage between, a, or it's a, it's a highlight of the story of David, of the kingdom of Israel. It happens right in the middle between two big chunks of this section of the Bible, between the, the history of David's rise to power uh, and the history of David's rule and his reign and his court, right? In the midst of that, after all these amazing things have happened, J, J, uh, David has taken Jerusalem, which they thought they could never do. Uh, he's brought the Ark of the Covenant that was lost to the Philistines back into Jerusalem. He set up a tent for it. He set up worship before it. They're praising the God, God right in front of the Ark of the Covenant without any veil in front of it, giving praise and thanksgiving singing to the Lord with, with instruments. Uh, and David has, has established his throne in Jerusalem. It's a big deal. And so this covenant is God like coming and, and, and affirming and all these things that happen. They look at it as almost like the Israelites looked at this passage as almost like the charter of their nation, almost like we look at the Declaration of Independence. This was their claim, the proof that God was with them, that God had established them through this covenant. And so because, because this, this you know, sh- little section of Scripture is so dense and so meaningful, there's been billions of pages written about it. And the danger in that is that we could really easily get sidetracked and start looking at the minutiae of the covenant details and in doing that, completely lose sight of the covenant God. And that's what's really what we're supposed to be doing when we're reading Scripture. Uh, you know, we are to, to do our best at that and to be intense about that. But ultimately, it's to lead us into a better understanding of who the God of the covenant is, who this king is that he's promised to us and what it means for us, why it matters to us in our everyday lives. And so that's what I want to do. I'm not going to focus. We're going to focus on some of the details because we have to, but for the most part, what I want to get out of today is I want us to see the beauty of the king and see the God of the covenant and what it is, what he's like, what he's done for us, and what it means for us in our everyday lives. So here's the big idea. Big idea is this, that God is always the giver of promises that never fail through Jesus, the good king. God is always the giver of promises that never fail through Jesus, the good king. Let's look at that one one part at a time. First part is that God 
is always the giver. Let me, let me give you a little bit of background. What just happened before this section in the Bible is that David is reflecting on all the good things that God has done for him, the victories that he's given him, that he's brought him up from nothing to be the king of Israel. And he says to himself, I should do something nice for God. I should build a temple for God. I should build a house for the ark to house the ark of the covenant in. God has been so good to me. I should do something good for God. And it's Seems perfectly reasonable, right? Even he tells this to Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet says, totally reasonable. You should do it. And then in the middle of the night, God wakes Nathan the prophet up to remind him, hey, to remind him, <laughs> to remind him that, uh, that revelation trumps reason. And to remind him of the very important fact uh, that as much as we might want to, to be doing, to be blessing God, to be doing good things for God, a lot of times we do that because we want to get some traction with God so that we can control him, so that he can, he'll then do the things that we ask him to do for us. God wakes Nathan up in the middle of the night to remind him to go and tell David that this relationship between divinity and humanity is not quid pro quo. It never is. God is always the giver and mankind is always the receiver. God does not need our help. Amen? God is always the one who's giving gifts to us. There's stories like this throughout the ancient world of pagan kings. They rise to ascendancy. They, they promise God, I'm going to build a temple for you in the house of, in the, for, the, for the house of your name. And then, and then God says, because you have done this, now I will give you more blessings. But in this story, it's totally different. God blesses David, blesses David, blesses David. David says, I should do something for God. And God comes back and says, nope. I've done things for you. I am the one who does things for you. I will have a temple built, but it'll be in my timing. It'll be in my, my chosen means to have it happen. For now, you need to understand one thing, is that God is always the giver of good things, and we are always the ones who receive it. And listen to what he does. So this is what he does. God comes to him, or he tells Nathan to tell David first. God reminds David of everything that he's done for David already. He's given him a place. He's taken him from shepherding the sheep in obscurity and lifted him to the heights of shepherding the people Israel. Basically, same thing, just much more difficult, <laughs> much more important, much more, uh, takes much more sense of servanthood and leadership. But he's given him a place as the king of Israel. His presence has been with him. He promises that he, he says, I have always been with you. And that he's reminded him that he's always protected him. God has always cut off all his enemies from before him. And this is what I want you to see. He says that first so that he can then call his attention to the fact that everything that God has just reminded David of, he also is promising that he will do for his people Israel. He's saying, look, I've done this for you. Accomplished, come through, blessed you in all these ways so that you can know when I give these promises you can know that these will be just as sure and certain. And so the promises are the same. He says for Israel, for his people, down through the ages, now that means us, he talks about um, that he will give us a place. A place. That's hard for us as Western American Christians to grasp 
how important or what that really means. You know who gets that? Sudanese refugees in Uganda. They understand how important it is to have a place when your place, when the place of security and safety and family and purpose and everything that you have in life is taken away from you, then you realize what it's like to have a place. We've never been invaded. We've never been kicked out of our land. So we don't have any conscious memory about what that's really like. But maybe you lost an apartment one time or another. Maybe you got kicked out of a place that you were living in. Maybe you had a group of friends or a community of friends and relationships that were meaningful to you that you lost. And that can give you a little bit of a sense about what a place is and what, what, a, what an important promise that God is in making this to us. What he's saying is that a place means unassailable peace, safety, comfort, purpose. And then he says in verse 10 that he will plant them so that they may dwell in his presence. He will plant us to dwell in his presence. Psalm 1 talks about how the righteous is like a tree planted by streams of water. It's this beautiful picture of how God has taken us like plants or like trees and he plants us in the midst of all the, everything that we could ever need. Abundant water, water of life, food, provision, blessing. In his presence really then means ultimate provision so that we would never again want or need or experience lack. That's what that means. And then finally he says uh, that he will give us rest. He will give rest from all their enemies. When it says, if you're looking at the text, it says violent men. That's a translation of, of the term sons of injustice, which I like better. It gives that sense of, of injustice that we all experience. It's almost, uh, it's a Hebrew way of speaking about people, but sometimes it's also a Hebrew way of speaking about categories or about um, what people are like. Uh, and and uh, it brings to mind almost like a persona of or the experience of these bad kings that are in power for selfish reasons, just serving themselves, and then the trickle-down effect of evil that we all experience from these evil kings being in power. And that's something that we all know about. And so what he's saying by giving rest from our enemies, it's not just the absence of evil or the absence of violent men, it's the presence of good in the highest places, the presence of good government the presence of good rule that we benefit from, so the trickle down from on high is goodness and blessing and righteousness and peace. Um, but here's the thing. These are, all, these are all future promises, right? David or Israel lost its place. They were sent into exile. They never really got it back. And when they did get it back, they lost it again. And we are now in the New Testament called aliens, sojourners, wandering the earth. We don't really have a place other than the church. Uh, and God's presence, it left the temple. And we now we have, this, we have God in spirit, but we don't have his presence with us. We don't see him face to face. And David went back to war and stayed there 
And then the history of Israel was war and then exile and then deportation and then suffering and loneliness. And we are still at war today. The threat of war is constantly looming over us. So what that, what that means is that these promises, because we're still waiting for these promises to come through, it means they're future promises. They're promises for us. It's God really talking about the new creation, what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. They are going to be unassailable peace, security, comfort, purpose, a complete and total absence of the feeling of lack. It will never come to our minds to want anything. Can you imagine that? Uh, and total rest. Check this out. Rest from the struggle against the real enemy that we have, sin. Now, if you're a Christian, man, does that sound good. You get that. The struggle against our own sin, it just weighs us down. It's so heavy. It colors everything in our lives. And what he's saying is we're going to get rest from that. It's such a big promise. It's such, a, it's such a massive promise and it's such a foreign experience that the problem, the problem is it's really hard for us to even grasp it. I mean, these are things that we long after, but we are so conditioned by the fall and the effects of the fall that it's hard for us to even grasp. What would that be like? What would a world like that really be like? There's a story, one of, the, one of the books that we use for counseling, a book called Good and Angry, there's a story of a woman who was brutally abused in every way that you can possibly imagine from three years old to 15. And it says that this woman, when she was finally taken in by a foster family, uh, that she was secretive, she was hypercritical, she lied freely, she stole everything she spoke vile and abusive language and even erupted in physical violence all the time because she was so conditioned by the evil that had happened to her. It had, it, it, it had conditioned her to respond and to react in those ways. And we're not, most of us, to that degree, but we all share that same experience of being conditioned by the evil in the world. We have been betrayed by friends. We have experienced injustice in the world. Uh, Our brothers and sisters of color have experienced racism, systemic racism, are still to this day experiencing systemic racism in the world and suffering from it. We are experiencing the, 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 the countless effects of hardship being sinned against by our own sin and each one leaves a little scar in our soul and in our emotions that begin to build up until we just eventually we start feeling the hope that we have just draining out of us. Our condition is losing hope. And so in that condition, here's the question. How do we know? How do we know that God's promises are going to come through? If our condition is losing hope, how do we change that to gaining hope, to trusting that God and his promises of, of, of a place, of presence, of protection are real and are really going to happen for us? How do we turn that around? 
And that's the second part. First, God is always the giver. Second, God is the giver of promises that never fail. Even if we can't absolutely grasp the magnitude of the promise because of our conditioning by sin in the world, we are able to absolutely know for certain that God is going to come through. How? How do we know that? A lot of ways. First, we know, you know what he just told David. He first reminded David of all of his faithfulness in the past as proof that he will be faithful in the future. He says, look what I have done. Know that my character is unchanging and that means that I will always be the same and I promise to do what I've promised to do in the future. And you can know that that's what will happen because I've come through in the past. And that's important. Man, when we are in despair, when you get to that place where you absolutely believe that nothing is ever going to be good again, or you reach that place of hopelessness and you're feeling it and you just don't know what to do next, what the Bible calls us to do is to remember, to look back in the past and remember, okay, what has God done for me in the past? And just start recounting in our mind the blessings I have a beautiful home. I have family that loves me. God has blessed me with this. In your own life, you can just call them up, call them up, call them up, and you can begin to praise and, and be grateful and praise your way into wholeness and in worship. Amen? Uh, but there's more than that. Even more amazing is this. If you really read this closely, what God is promising here is something astonishing. He says that his promises on a close read, if you read it closely, it says that his promises are stronger than death, his promises are stronger than sin, and his promises are, are stronger than time. Look at, look at what he says. They're stronger than death. In verse 12, it says, when your days, to David, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. David's gonna die doesn't mean nothing for the promise. The promise is still, is still in effect. I was thinking about this today, and I was thinking that death, death breaks every promise. You realize that? Any promise that you might make in the world, eventually death is going to break that. Eventually, death ends every relationship. Eventually, death extinguishes every hope, every dream, every desire. In our wedding ceremonies, in a Christian wedding ceremony, what do we say? Till death do you part. Why do we say that? Because we are recognizing that even in this most intimate union, even the closest relationship that God has given us under heaven, eventually, it's going to be broken by death. But God is saying, look, even though David dies, even though you're going to die, that doesn't mean nothing. The promise will continue. The promise is stronger than death. He says the promise is stronger than sin. Look at verse 14. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. You know, my, my experience is in my own life, <laughs> when I wake up in the morning, 
when Monday morning after, after worship, after I've heard the gospel just washed over me a thousand times, the reality is I wake up on Monday morning and this has been my experience with all of God's people is we live with a fear or at least a nagging suspicion that we are going to sin our way out of the promise. Amen? You know what I'm saying? I, every time, I something to, some, so disappointed with myself. So disappointed with myself. So mad that I've sinned this same way again. I got angry with my family. got angry with Nisa. Whatever. Something like that. I'm just like, man. And then you start, you know, if it's really bad, you start to wonder, how could I do that? What if it means, I mean, did I just, what if that means I'm not saved? What if that means, what if God, God shouldn't forgive me? Well, here's, here's the good news. The good news about that is, well, first, if you could care less about your sin, that's probably a good indicator, that's an indicator that you may not be part of God's people. But if you're even thinking along those lines, if you're thinking along those lines, like, oh, God shouldn't even forgive me, and you're so discouraged by it. That's some of the best proof you can get that you are part of God's people, that you do belong to him. And what it says, well, what the Bible says is that we have been adopted as sons of God, that we are one of the sons now, like he's saying in this passage, Hebrews Right of the Hebrew says that, that we're going to be, that sons of God are disciplined and that it's a good thing. And that when we are, when we, when we realize we're being disciplined, we should rejoice because God does not, he only disciplines his sons and daughters. Everybody else, he lets run their own way and do what they want to do. But his people, he disciplines us. And so he may very well discipline us. Sometimes that discipline may even take the form of us questioning whether we belong to God or not, but he will never, if we belong to him, ever let us go. We cannot sin our way out of the promise. The promise is stronger than our own sin. And finally, it says that it is stronger than time. Verse 16, it says, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Sometimes time just keeps going on and on. And you're thinking, you know, in, in, in the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, I mean, the whole song is about time. Like, how much more time is it going to take, Lord? How much more time until you ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile? But we've got to remember that time, what time is, time is the unfolding of God's plan on the earth. Uh, it is part of creation. He created time at the beginning, and time is really, it's perfectly in God's hands. Even though it might seem like it's going on forever to us, it's going exactly according to time, according to God's wisdom and his plan from before the foundation of the world. So we might be impatient, but God is not. Generations come, generations go, but God promises that the promise, he promises that it will be sure forever before him until eternity. The promise is valid and the promise is good. 
that the ancient Israelites, they were banking on this particular promise so much that even when, even when Solomon, the king who built the temple, went bad, even when after him the kings of Israel were just a succession of bad and wicked kings, even when foreign armies came and conquered them and took them into exile and burned the temple down, uh, to the ground, they never, ever, ever, ever gave up on this promise of God coming through on this promise that a good king would one day come and would rescue them. But the big question was, the big question was how? How is God, how could God possibly unravel this knot that we've made? How could God possibly undo everything sad that's happened? How could God possibly reverse the ages and ages, the effect of sin on the earth in our own hearts and our own experience and our own life. How could he possibly ever do that? And when? When would he do it? When is he coming? And the answer to that is the gospel. It's what we're talking, what we're waiting for in Advent. The promise of God is that God is always the giver of promises that never fail through Jesus, the good king. He promises through Jesus, the good king. And so let's first, let's first look at what this says the good king would do when he came, and then we can answer the question, who is the good king? Let's look at it right from out of the Bible. First thing, it says the good king would be obedient to God for the people. When God, made, when God made the covenant with Moses, right? He came with the covenant with Moses and he gave all these stipulations. Do this and you will live. And all God's people said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And the focus was on the people as a whole, keeping the law. Everybody had to keep the law. And what happened? Next thing we get, Book of Judges, right? Book of Judges, you're reading along the Book of Judges, and when you get to the end, the author of the Book of Judges creates this, this eerie echo of Sodom and Gomorrah to, to, of, of the people of, of Israel have gotten to be so bad that they're really, they're now worse than the enemies of God. They're worse than the people God dispossessed. They've become worse than even the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when you read the fine print, you see that one of the main characters is the grandson of Moses. Do you know what that means? Two generations. It took two generations before the people as a whole fell into such awful sin that they were described as being worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And so when the Mosaic Covenant comes, what's happening, what we see is there is a narrowing where all the responsibility is placed upon the king to be obedient for the people. Uh, from this point forward in the Old Testament, we look at, and in, in, in relation to the covenant, it talks about by the obedience of the king, God's people will stay in the land. Now let's recap, okay? Let's recap. Last week, the first promise that God made in Genesis that the offspring would crush the head of the snake. He would be injured in the process. We move up eons in the Bible. We get to the covenant that God made with Abraham, which was a reaffirmation of that same promise. 
And the promise is that the offspring, same one, would then be a blessing to all the nations. How? How would it be a blessing to all the nations? We get to David, thousand years forward again. Now the offspring that God is promising is going to be the one who would perfectly be obedient to the law on behalf of the people. He would be our law keeper. He would be obedient to the law. We would get credit for that. King's obedient. We're seen as obedient. Second thing, and this is going to start to blow some smoke off. Second thing, the good king would suffer the justice of men and he would suffer injury at the hands of men. It says that that when the offering is disobedient, that God would discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of men. And so in one sense, in one sense, that's talking about the kings that followed, the wicked kings of Israel, the sons of David who were, uh, who were evil and turned away from the Lord. God was saying, the individual kings I will discipline, but the dynasty I will not abandon. But in another sense, in another sense, 300 years later, Isaiah the prophet starts talking again about this same offspring. And this is what he, this is what he says about him. He says that this good king the offspring that he will get from God the justice that mankind deserves and that by his stripes we will be healed. Saying the same thing that it says in the Davidic, that what God has just said to David. Listen, it says to David, he said, I will discipline him with the rod, which means the justice of men. In Isaiah 53.10, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, God, seeing the offspring, Jesus. And he shall prolong his days when the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And then it says, he says to David that I will discipline him with the stripes of the sons of men. And Isaiah says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. It's talking about the same guy. The king would be obedient for us. God would crush the king and he would receive the justice that we deserved and that by that justice, by the injury that he sustained while crushing the head of the serpent, we would be cleansed and our sins would be forgiven. And so now that we know what the good king is going to do, we can ask, who is the good king? And rather than taking my word for it, Let me just read from the New Testament. Let's see what the apostles, the guys who wrote the New Testament, let's see what they say. This is what what they say. Paul says in Romans chapter 519, he says, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, talking about Adam, he says, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made appointed righteousness. 
You know, we talked last week about first Adam, second Adam. First Adam fails, second Adam wins. By his obedience, we are all given, clothed in his obedience and made to be righteous before the sight of God. Matthew, first thing Matthew says, first thing out of Matthew's mouth is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Why does he say that first? First thing he wants to say is this is the promise. What God promised to Davis, this is the offspring. This is him. This is Luke. Luke chapter 132 says, this is Gabriel talking. Gabriel announcing the birth of the Lord to Mary says, Jesus will be great, will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Same thing, referring back to the Davidic covenant, saying, this is him, the good king. Even Peter in Acts 2.33 says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What's the promise? What promise did the Holy Spirit make to David? That God would send the offspring, that the offspring would be obedient for the people, that he would be crushed with the justice of God, and that through that we would be saved. So who is it? Sunday school answer? Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that blow your mind? From the third chapter of the Bible, through thousands of years of history, there's one story, this interweaving theme of the offspring that's going to come and rescue mankind and it keeps getting refined and shaped and eventually the offspring comes and does everything that God promised he was going to do. And you know what that means for us? What it means is that if Jesus won it, you can't lose it. He won it for us. And by being under the shelter of him, we are under his protection. We are in his presence. We have a place in the church and a promise of these things still to come. We will die. You will die. But the promise is stronger than death because Jesus rose from the grave. And you will sin and keep on sinning. But the promise is not broken by sin because it's based on Christ's sinless obedience and not ours. And time will continue until it runs out right on time. And when that happens, then we are going to be brought into a world that we can't even conceptualize now, a world of unassailable peace, of security, of purpose, a total and complete absence of lack. It will never cross our minds to want or need anything. And we will have total rest from the struggle against sin and we will have righteousness coming down from on high upon us as Christ rules in perfection and glory for all time. Amen? Amen. Because God is always the giver of promises that never fail through Jesus Christ, the good King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your astonishing word and the blessing it is to us. Lord, you've given us minds to see that we see 
the story of the Bible from beginning to end is all about Jesus and what you are doing to rescue your people. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to cast aside the foolishness of thinking that this is quid pro quo, that you do something for us, we do something for you. And remember, help us remember that you are always the giver and we are always the receiver. And then in, as gratitude overflows our entire being, we would strive with every ounce of our power to keep the law and to be obedient as an act of love and worship to you, knowing that we are safe. And Lord, we pray that you would come quickly. We pray that you would come quickly and rescue us. But in the meantime, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful, to be evangelists, to seek to share this light with everyone we possibly can. And we pray that through that, you would bless us to see our little church grow in the coming year and beyond that. And then we would pray that we would see your name glorified throughout the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.